we do know is if you go through adrenopause at the exact same time as menopause, you're going to have particularly, you're more likely to have particularly severe vasomotor symptoms and genitourinary syndromes of menopause. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hi friends, I hope you're well. We're going to be talking all about hormones today. I think you're going to find this episode very, very helpful in fact, because my guest uh, on today's show dives into when hormone therapy might be appropriate. So at what age and stage should you be thinking about things like estrogen therapy and progesterone therapy? Um, What levels should you be looking at in terms of your blood work to decide whether it's the right time? If in fact you, you are someone who's open to taking hormone replacement therapy. And we also answer questions around um, DHEA and testosterone, uh, also looking at adrenal function and something you may not have heard of, which is adrenal pause, uh, where the adrenals are not actually working as well. And this happens inevitably in everyone at some stage of their life. But hopefully, if you're fully optimized, you'll be putting that off until much, much later in life. So you're going to hear all about that today and how to optimize your hormones. And if you'd like more on this and a helpful guide uh, to help you syncing your nutrition and your fitness and even your creativity with your menstrual cycle, then I have a free guide for you with some delicious tasting smoothie recipes included and a breakdown of the menstrual cycle and what to do in each phase. And you can go and grab that over on my website, angelafosterperformance.com forward slash hormones. That's angelafosterperformance.com forward slash hormones. But let me introduce you now to my guest. So it is Dr. Kyle Gillett and he is an MD Uh, at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. He's dual board certified obesity medicine and family medicine. Uh, He enjoys providing holistic individualized care to his patients and he's hugely, hugely knowledgeable in the areas of preventative medicine, aesthetics, sports medicine, hormone optimization, obstetrics, infertility, integrative medicine and precision medicine, including genomics. And he really believes that each human is a unique creation that requires attention to their body, mind and soul to achieve optimal health. And as I say, we dive into many areas today around hormones, but also looking at his six pillars of health, which include exercise, diet, sleep, stress, sunlight, and spirit. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to Dr. Kyle Gillett. So Kyle, it is so awesome to be sitting down here with you today. I first heard you on Andrew Huberman's podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, and I was just completely enthralled. It was it was a long interview, as all of his were, but just so in-depth. I remember listening to it in the gym and thinking, oh my God, this guy is so knowledgeable. I'm going to have to find out who he is, where he is, and if I can, invite him to come on the show. And so I'm just so absolutely thrilled to have you here. Very warm welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. So we were talking offline a little bit about different topics, and I think there's so many different rabbit holes, really, that we could go down. But a really good place to start is let's start with women in their 40s, because I think this is the area of real disruption. And I think sometimes it kind of 
hits you across the face a little bit as a woman, right? Particularly if you've maybe had your children and you know you've had disruption like I did in my 30s, you know, when you're having children and you're kind of prenatal, then your pregnancy, then your postpartum, you may have had things like me, like endometriosis, PCOS, you have all these things going on. And then all of a sudden it's a bit of a side swipe in your 40s when levels change again. And, and commonly, uh, you know, from my own experience that I see people in my clinic, women really struggle with metabolic issues, with anxiety, with poor sleep. Can you briefly explain for, for those listening what's going on during perimenopause? Hormone health is a moving target. So throughout your lifespan, whether you're male or female, but particularly if you're female, you're not just finding the perfect formula and then continuing on. Because common problems are common, menopause or ovarian failure is extremely common. It's inevitable to happen in everyone, at least with current technology, if you hopefully live that long. So learning how to manage very common problems is what clinicians should do because that's what helps people the most. And that's one of the reasons why I got into it as well. When you're thinking about... Um, the connection between metabolic health, body composition, energy, mood, libido, and hormones. Hormones are literally the signaling molecules that will send signals back and forth between different organ systems and within the same organ system. Endocrinology is in between organ systems. Um, autocrine and paracrine hormones are working on near or the same cells or organ system. And then intracrine is where you have, uh, that's the intracellular endocrinology as well. So you have endocrine, autocrine, paracrine, and intracrine. And all those different signaling molecules will start the cascade. And there's an excellent article from the Mayo Clinic proceedings, Dr. Pataki, P-A-T-A-K-Y wrote this. And you can see their flow chart that they published. And it starts with um, it starts kind of in two different areas. You have hormonal changes, for example, menopause, and then you also have insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome starting. And then after that, it leads to sarcopenia, which is less lean body mass. And with less lean body mass, you burn fewer calories. So you have body fat deposition and muscle protein degradation. And this is what people colloquially know as metabolic damage that happens so often during and around the time of perimenopause. Mm, that's really interesting. And, and the studies that I've seen particularly show that, that yes, women, and I think women sense this, they say, why have I got this weight? And it's not necessarily like they're piling on the pounds, but they see those body composition changes. And by that, I mean, they're not just seeing weight gain, which may only be say half a stone. It's that they've feel and look different because muscle mass, as you say, is lowering. They feel all around softer and then they're getting this belly fat that's going on. And that's something I, I don't know about you, I commonly see where they may have had other symptoms like anxiety, brain fog, hot flashes. They've gone and got some hormone therapy, but that isn't resolving these metabolic issues, which they still feel stuck with. Um, and I think this is where resistance training becomes very, very important. Absolutely. There is no better fat burner than lean metabolically active muscle tissue. Mm. I hear a lot of women say that they feel like they're turning into a guy. A lot of times that is because they feel like they have body fat deposition in their abdomen subcutaneously, and they're depositing body fat more where a male might typically do that. 
But if you look at their hormonal profile, they actually have less androgens and relatively more estrogen, more estrogen dominant. And that really makes sense because that body fat in that area has a high level of aromatization. Mm. And actually, from what I've seen as well, is I think estrogen or E1, the, the um, estrogen that's produced more predominantly after menopause is aromatized in the fat cells, right? So actually, the way you enter menopause is key. So it's kind of like a lot of people are talking about this topic with women in their late 40s, early 50s who are coming with really strong symptoms. But actually, I feel as though if we can catch this early, women in their late 30s, early 40s, and get them really, really metabolically healthy, they're going to have a much easier time and a, and a better life beyond 50. Would you agree? I definitely agree. Um, one excellent researcher, uh, the late Dr. Labra, he recently passed away. Um, he was in his eighties, but he was one of the few, uh, scientists and clinicians. He was an MD PhD and he studied, um, endpoints for both hormone replacement and menopause, different, uh, interventions that you can do for essentially, um, maintaining your health span. And he also studied cancer. And if you look at the ratio of estrogen, you have two main types of estrogen, central and peripheral peripheral is formed by aromatase. And he was one of the main ones that showed that, um, all of your estrogen after menopause comes from the aromatization of adrenal androgen. So androgens that are produced, uh, in the adrenal gland, which is a small gland above the kidney. And then often, um, those androgens like DHEA convert to estrogen to help backfill the estrogen. So of course the better functioning your adrenal gland, so if you don't have adrenal fatigue, as that is colloquially known as, then you are going to have better estrogen production after menopause. You're also going to have better testosterone production after menopause. Even before menopause, you have about half and half of your testosterone, depending on the female, that's produced by your ovary in the theca gland and produced in your adrenal by the um, zona reticulosa. So as you know, you don't want to be fasting too long and putting your body in a state of stress, particularly if you're exercising alongside on a daily basis, um, as that can really interfere with female hormonal health. And so one of the ways that I track that and figure out how long I can be fasting for in the morning without putting too much stress on my body is by using my Lumen device. And Lumen basically measures your respiratory exchange ratio to tell you whether you're in fat burn or carb burn or a combination of the two and if you wake up in fat burning mode and you continue to extend your fast and then as you start taking a breath test every sort of hour or so you see yourself moving more into carb burn that is a sign that you've now pushed the envelope a little bit too far and that's when you want to break your fast it's also a fabulous way to find out whether you should be pre-fueling before that intense hit workout if you really want to bring it and so i absolutely love doing this stuff with um as you know i'm big in to tracking data and uh, and using that really for optimal health and optimal performance and lumen can really help you do that and they are offering listeners of this podcast 50 dollars or 50 pounds off depending where you are in the world off the lumen device and package you just need to head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen and enter code angela at checkout that's angelafoster.me forward slash lumen and enter code angela at checkout 
So are you saying there that if you if you're if you're less stressed, you're going to be able to produce more DHEA, which then allows some of that to be aromatized and some to still be available? Because DHEA itself is important, right? In terms of it's mm-hmm. an anabolic hormone, it counters the effects of high cortisol. Whereas if you're not producing as much and you're aromatizing, then you're going to be low. Is is that what you mean by that? That can be the case, but not necessarily. If you're overproducing stress hormone like cortisol, then theoretically your adrenal factory can be so busy that it might produce less DHEA. However, the one of the really interesting feedback mechanisms is that ACTH, which is adrenocorticotrophic stimulating hormone, um, that hormone ACTH stimulates both cortisol and DHEA. So often if you produce cortisol better, you produce DHEA better as well. So that shows that um, things like cortisol burnout can also lead to DHEA burnout. If you look at the reference ranges of DHEA, it's kind of similar to andropause. If you're not familiar with andropause, basically it's what people call male menopause, decreasing testosterone. But both males and females have adrenopause, which is where your adrenals tire out. Some people go through adrenopause at age 30, and some people go through adrenopause at age 90. It is highly, highly variable. But what we do know is if you go through adrenopause at the exact same time as menopause, you're going to have particularly, you're more likely to have particularly severe vasomotor symptoms and genitourinary syndromes of menopause. Yeah, that's interesting. So, with, I mean, when you're talking now with adrenopause, you're talking about something that's biologically going to happen at some point anyway, as opposed to burnout, where now actually we can see like metabolized cortisol, free cortisol going down and the body sort of almost starts to protect itself. So adrenopause is actually an event that will happen to everyone. Is that what you're saying at some point in their life? Given enough time, some individuals are extremely resistant. They have very strong adrenal steroid production. Some of these individuals have a mutation Um, It's called NCCAH, non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, to where their adrenal glands just work great. If you have two genes for that and you're female, then um, it could possibly even, um, you know, have a result of pseudohermaphroditism. But if you have one gene, then it's just enough to where you're particularly resilient against adrenopause. And often you have excellent estrogen and androgen levels, even into very late ages. There's been a lot of studies done with um, both DHEA, testosterone, and estrogen. And it looks like if you replace DHEA, the more normal your endogenous production over age, the less it helps, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. But if you're very, very low, then it tends to help more. And there's, um, it's interesting to look at this DHEA hormone because in different countries, I believe in, I believe in the UK, I'm, I'm not board certified or licensed in the UK or anything, but I believe for a while it was brand name only. I forget the name of the brand name DHEA in the United States is it is over the counter. You can just get it on Amazon because it's considered safe enough in Canada. Um, I believe it is prescribed only. And also in Canada, there's a lot of different medications that is essentially just DHEA combined with a different hormonal modifier. 
So depending on where you live, DHEA might be seen as a medication or a supplement. So here it seems to be, it's kind of, it's one of those things where you can prescribe it as, for example, a nutritional uh, therapist or functional nutrition practitioner. Uh, I, I can like access that through practitioner accounts. Um, but you wouldn't, an individual wouldn't be able to just go, it's biomatrix, I believe is the one that we have here. An individual wouldn't be able to go and order that themselves, except under the guidance of a practitioner, but it wouldn't need to be a medical doctor. But then my, my concern always with DHEA as well is unless you know which pathways it's going down, it can be quite pro-androgenic, right? And cause other problems for individuals. So I'm sort of quite surprised that you could go and get it over the counter. Yeah. And it can also be estrogenic. I've mm. seen it develop gynecomastia, which is obviously not just due to estrogen signaling, but I've seen men develop gynecomastia um, just from a DHEA supplement. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so with, with women, when we look at them, obviously we know that um, managing stress, managing their metabolism is key. How, how, easy do you think it is or should women i guess and it's always a bit of a controversial question isn't it um do you think it's possible i mean it must be possible because we had women do this multiple times previously but in today's current environment we're seeing such significant hormonal disruption um do you, you probably don't see them in your practice because people who have problems will be the ones coming to see you but how common do you think it is and how easy is it to make that transition through menopause without symptoms, without needing anything? PCOS, um, all the different axes of PCOS, of course, there's a lot of different axes, which maybe we get into as well. But I would say the, uh, the prevalence of that is around 30% in the population of most developed countries. Many, most people that have it don't know, and most people tend to have a fairly mild case. Infertility um, is extremely common. And subfertility is even more common. I would say at least 50% of couples, whether it's male factor, female factor, or third factor, where it's combined, at least 50% experience some degree of subfertility in developed countries for varying reasons. Um, a lot of it is things like metabolic syndrome and sleep apnea. And then even rare diagnoses like hypothalamic amenorrhea or premature ovarian insufficiency, those are becoming much more common as well. Uh, adrenal fatigue is another one, or just adrenal uh, relative subclinical hypoplasia. Um, and then if you, I, I certainly count thyroid hormone pathology among that, that is of course becoming more and more common. Mm, super common. And what about like the transition through to menopause? Uh, if, if you've got a woman who is managing her stress, she's physically very active, she's been looking after her metabolic health, maybe she didn't have any of these um, problems previously, she's had a regular cycle. Uh, are there many women who can then make that transition without having, you know, vasomotor complications and all the other things that we hear and see? In general, the better you are able to optimize your um, estrogens and androgens without the ovary, the better your transition to menopause. However, even if you have an optimal profile, it does not necessarily mean you will be symptom-free. And even if you are mostly symptom-free, it does not mean that you should not consider optimizing your hormones naturally or even somewhat naturally. So 
again, to use DHEA as an example, because it's a supplement in the States or because it's relatively easy to get. Some people consider that hormone replacement therapy and some people do not. Some people consider synthetic estrogens and progestins like contraceptive pills. Some people consider that hormone replacement therapy as I do, and some people do not. So thinking about doing something with your hormones, I would say 100% of females should do and they should do it earlier rather than later. So if you're considering it, the time to get lab work up and look at your baseline levels and use the accurate, precise biomarker would be yesterday rather than today. Mm. Another thing to think about with estrogen signaling is that there's two different estrogen receptors and various things can affect them. There's also many estrogen-related receptors. For example, um, there's estrogen estrogen-related receptor alpha, and that one cholesterol binds to. So cholesterol is actually a hormone in and of itself. It's a ligand where it binds to that receptor. And there's also um, one people might be more familiar with, estrogen-related receptor gamma, and that's what BPA or bisphenol A binds to. Okay. I want to get into that actually to do with sort of environmental uh, estrogen disruptors and mimickers in just a moment. But when we're looking then, sticking with what you were saying there in terms of testing, um, so how often should women be testing their hormones? Uh, is it like an annual workup or more often than that? And at what point should they then be thinking about? Because there's this theory of this sort of critical window, particularly with things like brain health. What do you advise women at what stage should they be checking their hormones in an ideal world? And when this should they then be looking at uh, potentially introducing hormone therapy? A good rule of thumb as a baseline, of course, you can always do more if you want to optimize things. But to get ahead of the eight ball and use true preventive medicine, then once a year up to about the age of 40 and ideally twice a year over the age of 40, of course, you would want to follow how you're doing subjectively. So if you're starting to have menstrual abnormalities, like if they're spacing out, which we call oligomenorrhea, then you want to um, be a, a little bit more proactive with that, especially if you haven't had a menses in, say, you know, six months. <laughs> um, you would certainly want to get a workup because if you do need to start or tweak something, doing it as early as possible is going to be uh, by far better efficacy. Okay. And one of the things I see uh, women in the early stages, they seem to, to struggle with the most is rather than the cycle lengthening, it seems to be shortening and actually they're getting heavier bleeds and they seem to uh, effectively they're producing less progesterone. Um, in that scenario, is that a place where actually they should be thinking about optimizing and maybe taking hormones at that point? or using maybe natural things that can support? Because I know, you know, many instances, a lot of doctors will say actually we can, or functional medicine doctors will talk about using things like MACO and things like that uh, to try and sort of optimize levels until there's further disruption. I'm just curious on your view. Yes. Um, depending on the patient, each one of those things could work. For patients with really severe symptoms, the, uh, and that have, congruent hormonal profiles, the chance that you can optimize with something, um, for example, just maca is certainly a lot less likely than for someone with mild symptoms that has um, mildly suboptimal hormone profiles. For that individual, 
um, something like maca might be a lot more reasonable. When you look at um, hormone productions, progestins, for example, progesterone, pregnenolone, 5-alpha and 3-alpha progesterone, those drop much more quickly than estrogens. So usually estrogen is the last hormone to drop during the perimenopausal time. So a lot of women um, do start progesterone. Of course, there's risks and benefits to starting any medication or hormone, but often that is what we see. In general, if your FSH is not suppressed, and the units might be slightly different in the UK, but if your FSH is still below around 35 or 40, you should certainly attempt not to start any estrogen until it climbs higher and higher. There are exceptions, of course, but that's another good rule of thumb. So I spent a long time trying to find, years in fact, a greens powder that I actually liked the taste of. And I finally found one that basically tastes amazing on its own or actually mixed into shakes, which is pretty unusual because some of them taste kind of really minty and that overpowers everything else. Whereas this one just tastes really, really nice. And it mixes well with banana and protein powder. Uh, it also mixes really well with a strawberry protein I've been using and it just works super well just on its own on an empty stomach. And that is Athletic Greens. It has prebiotics, probiotics and naturally occurring enzymes that boost digestion, has your daily dose of vitamin C and zinc, healing mushrooms, magnesium to help you regulate all day energy and support um, energy production in our cells. And it's packed with superfoods, adaptogens and antioxidants. And I absolutely love it. And the cool thing is you can get one year supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs when you get your order of Athletic Greens. All you need to do is go to this special link, athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster to bag yourself a year supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, that's interesting. At what level would you then start to look with um, estrogen therapy? Uh, as far as like uh, full, looking at uh, hormone replacement therapy with estrogen, yeah. If you um, are no longer having menstrual periods, that's another one, another good one to see. Because even if your F, let's say your FSH is seventy, but you still think you're having very frequent menses, perhaps that's an uh, like endometrial hyperplasia or even an endometrial in, uh, carcinoma. Worst case scenario. So you want to make sure that you're no longer having um, endometrial bleeds or menses. And then looking at an FSH above, above 50 would be quite safe. Um, when those criteria are met, then, uh, especially if you're at a younger age, you certainly want to consider starting estrogen sooner rather than later, because once you are truly in that menopausal time and your estrogen is low and, uh, specifically looking at estradiol most of the time, and your FSH is high, the longer you wait, the less benefit it will bring. Okay. 
Yeah, I'd have to, to read that. That's interesting. Um, and so what about with progesterone? Because obviously, like, as you say, that sort of drops quicker than estrogen, but it's estrogen that brings the more obvious symptoms to women, isn't it? When they say, oh, I've got terrible hot flashes and waking up in the middle of the night or really bad brain fog, I just can't concentrate and things like this. Whereas progesterone is sort of sneaking out the back door, you're getting more anxious, you're not sleeping quite as well, these symptoms going on. What are your thoughts about women just taking progesterone? Some women uh, are great candidates for progesterone monotherapy without any estrogens. It, it just kind of depends on the individual. Some people have bad reactions to progesterone as well. It's not very common. Oral progesterone is not very bioavailable, so not a lot of it is absorbed in the gut. And then also, in order to cross the blood-brain barrier, it has to be reduced. So 5-alpha reduced and or 3-alpha reduced. So depending on the individual, they might do that better or worse. Supplements like creatine can help upregulate the amount of 5-alpha reductase um, to help that progesterone cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, it's known as DHP or THP, kind of like testosterone converts to DHT. But uh, depending on the individual, many do very, very well on just progesterone. That's interesting about the creatine. And is that a usual, like just standard dose of kind of 5 grams daily? For most people, five grams daily is a good dose. Um, some individuals that are non-responders or that uh, just exercise a ton, they use more creatine. I think of it as the backup fuel tank for the mitochondria, which is important for maintaining um, ovarian reserve as well. When I think about the mitochondria, the, the creatine is the extra fuel tank to um, basically hold that phosphate group for ATP. And then CoQ10, Ubiquinol is the active form of CoQ10. That's kind of like the, the enzyme or the fuel converter that converts that NAD into ATP. You need coenzyme Q10 to do that. And then NMN, NAD+, even NR, those are even niacin. Um, niacin actually cures NAD depletion myalgia as well, which is just vitamin B3. But those different um, NAD and ATP precursors. That's the actual fuel that helps go in. And then L-carnitine is the fuel pump. So that helps facilitate the transfer of fatty acids and fuel in general into the mitochondria. So all of those things are important to ensure that you have them optimized in order to maintain the quality of the ova or ovarian function and fertility into older ages. If you look at mice treated with these various interventions, particularly NAD plus precursors, they can even have reversal of um, mouse menopause, if you will, and oh, really? regain fertility. That's super interesting. because um, So I recently have been taking NAD plus precursors. Um, after inter interviewing a biochemist here in the UK, actually has a very good supplement range um, alongside creatine because I train a lot. And I've really like noticed, I hadn't realized that research around ovarian function, but noticeable differences in energy, noticeable. And also interestingly in deep sleep uh, and also just not actually needing quite so much sleep. I almost have to be careful that I'm not undersleeping. It's it's quite it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's one of the potential downsides or upsides is that it can improve your sleep. It helps the mitochondria everywhere, not just in the ovaries, of course. But uh 
when you think about that, you're essentially optimizing your ATP. And you do have to be a little bit careful with doses there, even though NAD plus precursors are very, very safe. There is theoretical risk behind them because they can provide so much energy that if you do have something like a cancer, then theoretically they can provide that energy as well. It is a relatively small risk, but um, you know there's a benefit and a detriment to everything. When you're thinking about your rate limiting step, um, let's say that there's an individual that is deficient in coenzyme Q10, and perhaps they need CoQ10 in order to unlock that NAD plus, or unlock or, or to actually utilize that creatine, or maybe they have trouble pushing their um, nutrients into the mitochondria, insulin resistance can contribute to this as well, because a lot of your fatty acid chains like triglycerides or glucose are outside the cell instead of inside the cell. So those four kind of work together synergistically and for individuals trying to maintain ovarian function, that is one vector. We can also talk about uh, sirtuins and hormesis or things like mTOR and rapamycin and that kind of like mTOR AKT uh, PI3K pathway. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. When you talk in, in just a second, when you talk about like sirtuins, I'm just curious um, in terms of your thoughts around resveratrol, because that seems pretty controversial in terms of its actual bioavailability and absorption. Uh, where do you sort of come out on that? Yeah. And some people take it with fat, which might potentially increase its bioavailability. And some companies have formulated it to where perhaps its bioavailability is better. And it is a plant, it is one plant polyphenol. I don't think there's anything magical about it. I forget it's either cert one or cert three. I think cert one that it pretty profoundly changes the activity of, um, increases the activity of cert one, I believe, but it's just one plant polyphenol. Um, it's kind of like, I, I think of it as maybe similar to boron or zinc for hormone health. If you happen to have a really, really hyperactive or really, really hypoactive cert one, then perhaps it's helpful for you, but it's just one of the many plant polyphenols that can be helpful from a hormetic standpoint and from an antioxidant standpoint. So just like giving everyone zinc is not going to fix all hormone pathologies. If you happen to give zinc to someone who's deficient in zinc, even if they're just deficient intracellularly, like uh, it's more common in older ages to be deficient intracellularly for zinc, but not in the blood. Um, resveratrol similarly is not, uh, you know, like a magical antioxidant sirtuin activator. Hmm. So do you look at like sirtuin activators then more from like incorporating them into your diet? So kind of adding cacao into smoothies, drinking maybe matcha green tea, you know, I mean, from an antioxidant perspective, certainly like chaga, I think, you know, one teaspoon of chaga is giving you the antioxidants of like 600 blueberries. So there's the, as you say, there's the hermetic influence and then there's the antioxidant, right? And they're, they're not always the same in each. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm just curious what you, what you advise with patients there. Some patients have such a wonderful diet with many different plant-based antioxidants and uh, hormetic activators that they just simply, uh, it's not going to be clinically significant to take a supplement that helps. Some individuals, and I'm, I won't, I'm trying not to pick on anyone, but just as an example, let's say there's someone who's on a carnivore diet, they're not taking in any plant molecules, 
and they do not intermittent fast. Their mTOR is always active and they're in a very anabolic state, then perhaps they would benefit more from something like Chagas or Shilajit or Resveratrol or um, Quercetin or all, a lot of these different, uh, some people call them adaptogens, some people call them CERT activators. Um, that's just one example of a patient that might benefit more from a supplement regimen like that. Mm. If they're not, yeah, as you say, if they're not really getting any of it in their diet. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think this is the thing, isn't it? Is um, with women in particular, not including plant compounds to me just feels very deleterious because of the, the profound effects on gut health and gut motility and actually detoxifying excess, excess estrogen. It was, it's always sort of concerning to me. And I've seen, I mean, I've seen some, some funny things with the ketogenic diet where women have prematurely gone into, um, menopause it seems and then actually even post 12 months when they come off that diet and they go on a more plant-based diet with sufficient protein and healthy fats their menstrual cycle resumes yes um, that sums up uh, what the most powerful intervention for almost all females is i am a very strong believer in food is medicine and it is the main medicine and as you mentioned if they're not getting those things in the food, then all the different band-aids of supplements and medications are going to, only going to bring a fraction of the benefit that those dietary changes can. Yeah. I think some, I think what women are really concerned about at the moment is there is so much on social media around controlling blood glucose that it's almost become an obsession that they're very concerned at any point. What happens? What happens? And I see this with women who, you know, I mean, I have it here on my desk. I could play with the Lumen device, for example. And I do find it really useful to see, you know, am I burning fat? Am I burning carbs? But from my perspective, I actually, and I'm always quite competitive with things. I understand that burning fats and carbs is a good thing because that's true metabolic flexibility. I yep. think people get hung up on, I need to be in fat burning all the time. And actually it's those individuals that I find have a harder time of reaching a one or a two, yep. whether that's because these devices are not advanced enough and they're misinterpreting ketones, whether those which I've seen some reports around, but or whether actually these individuals are kind of almost in a, in a state of high stress all of the time that their body's now producing it. Um, I'm curious to your thoughts around that and also the level of hormetic stress that women in their menstruating years should be placing because fasting, again, is a form of stress. Um, I guess, first of all, when, when we're looking at blood glucose, People take their HbA1c levels and we want to get it to an optimal level. It's something, for example, I, I am monitoring and always want to optimize because I'm someone who has PCOS. So it's a big marker for me and I probably have a harder time controlling blood glucose. But obviously what we're seeing on the Internet is constant graphs put out and books at the moment of look what happens if you have this and very natural foods that people are completely steering away it's like right don't have oat milk only have almond milk now because you're going to get this huge spike um how much do you think we really need to be worrying about natural foods providing uh, a momentary spike if actually we're doing all of the other things like sleeping well exercising well for example it somewhat depends on how high the blood glucose spike is. That's another reason why CGMs are becoming more popular. And soon there will be CGMs that measure ketones and lactic as well, which will be particularly interesting from a metabolic standpoint. Um, 
as far as how important, um, you know, your insulin resistance and blood glucose markers, for example, a glucose tolerance test, or even just what a CGM puts out, it is certainly important, but it is not the only vector for holistic health. It's not even only the vector for metabolic health. It is good that that has been added as an addition. It's a, so many people are a little bit obsessive about it and reductionist in, and by reductionist, I mean that that is all they care about. Some groups, all they care about is calories in calories out. And of course, being obsessed with the physics of that is not going to lead to helpful clinical endpoints for everyone. It's very helpful and you have to address that. And you also have to address the metabolic flexibility. But for optimal health, just like if you're trying to tune your car, you're not just looking at how much gasoline you're putting in and burning, and if you're overflowing the fuel tank or not. You're not just looking at the efficiency of how the motor runs. You need to look at um, the aerodynamics, and you need to look at how the wheels are spinning and how much friction you have on the ground. So when uh, a clinician or a scientist tries to reduce everything to tracking calories and then tracking uh, the health of an individual's blood glucose and insulin, for example, those are absolute musts, just like it's an absolute must to track the fuel you put into and burn in your car and also how efficient the engine is running. But there are so many other things to take into account. Mm. And what would those things be? Because when you look at it, for example, you may find that, let's say, you know, I know from interviewing like the founder of one of the blood glucose companies, all the or the CGM companies, all the data they've collected, right? We had a, a chat laughing about it. Bananas make your blood sugar go bananas. Okay. But then the most common food for making your blood glucose spike was sushi. So it's kind of almost a no-brainer. While if white rice is going to cause a spike, which gets metabolized into glucose, you know, very quickly, they don't doesn't really seem lots of vitamins in white rice. It's sort of a no-brainer of this should be an occasional food. But mm -hmm. a banana is something different because, and and it's interesting because actually looking at my own measurements, if I take bananas from the grocery store while they're green, chop them, peel them, chop them up, put them in the freezer. They're great because they contain a lot more resistant starch, which is good for your gut, and then put them into a smoothie. Uh, and I say use half a banana, very, very minimal spike, if any, in blood glucose. And I feel like I'm getting the benefits of that banana. Whereas take a ripe banana off the stand and eat it, it's going to be a spike. But then, yeah. if, you know, from what you're saying there, you make a very good point. There's, there's loads of other things that you're getting from that banana, right? There are vitamins and minerals and things that are having an impact and fiber on your body. Um, what other things should we be looking at then? Do you, do you think in making these decisions? One of the main ones is just your lifestyle pillars. So your exercise, your sleep, your, uh, level of stress, you want enough stress, especially in the morning and not too much stress in the evening in general. And yes, most people have too much stress, but you don't want to have too relaxing of a morning. You want to get into that cycle, just like you get into the melatonin cycle. You want to get into your stress and cortisol cycle. Um, so you want to address your pillars of lifestyle, but the main other objective marker that you're looking at is your hormone health. You want to have good thyroid hormone health. You want to have good uh, growth hormone and IGF-1 health and good androgens, estrogens, and progestogens. 
And then from that, you can look at things like how your androgens profoundly directly impact your VO2 max or your um, ability to carry oxygen to end tissues. Um, that is, uh, VO2 max is probably the main um, health span marker. So if you can look at all the other markers and compare them to VO2 max, and uh, if you take an 80-year-old with very, very good VO2 max, they're probably much healthier across the board than someone with a far suboptimal VO2 max. And that's directly impacted by your androgens and many other things as well, including your mitochondria. So that's uh, one of the, the main angles that people are missing. And I think more people are talking about it, but there just needs to be a consolidation, if you will, between the um, traditional academic medicine and the um, functional medicine, for lack of a better term, there's uh, this cultural shift to where people do care about their hormones, but usually the individuals that they seek advice for for their hormones are not the most um, reputable and accomplished scientists. They're usually not MDs and DOs and PhDs. Um, they're uh, often knowledgeable, but often they're just not those individuals with terminal degrees, degrees who are publishing clinical literature on the science. So there's a little bit of a discongruence between um, the scientific community and the cultural community. And that is slowly coming together. And those two groups are approaching each other and collaborating with each other as well, which is very reassuring. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying. I want to dig a bit deeper there with um, things like VO2 max, because a very interesting concept that I've been sort of looking at, and, and I first heard from Peter Atier, is this concept of backcasting and looking at what's going to be effectively your um, last decade and then tracking back from there. And most people fall very much behind is what he's found. So, for example, if you really think that your, your last decade, you want it to be somewhere between 90 and 100, actually most people in their 40s and 50s are falling well below on VO2 max and, and interestingly, well below on grip strength, right, which is a big marker of aging. Um, in terms of VO2 max then, I'm curious, how are people's androgens affecting their VO2 max? And can we train our way out of anything that may be adversely impacting it? Testosterone, specifically the binding of any androgen to the androgen receptor. If you increase the density of androgen receptors in the cytoplasm of a muscle cell, it will think of it as it's grabbing onto that oxygen and helping to hold on to it. In addition, and the mechanism behind this second uh, vector is not well understood, but it also increases EPO, which is known as erythropoietin. Um, and all androgens do this, not just testosterone. But this erythropoietin will cause excess, or not excess, increased production of hemoglobin and red blood cells. And that extra hemoglobin in the blood will also carry more oxygen. So you're carrying more oxygen and you're absorbing more oxygen as well. Okay. And there's also uh, a kind of genetic component from what I've seen from DNA reports as well in terms of yeah. your VO2 max potential, right? Yeah, there's absolutely a genetic component. Yeah. <laughs> so even if, even if you have uh, not ideal genetics for a high VO2 max, it still is just as beneficial. 
So you're really competing against yourself when it comes to VO2 max. Yeah, and improving it. And that's through a combination of kind of zone two training and then also very high intensity training. Yes, especially very high intensity training. Runners and cyclists and swimmers might be familiar with VO2 max workouts, Mm. which are some of the hardest to do. And usually those are very high intensity. And then zone two is essentially training for your mitochondria. And also it helps your sleep profoundly. It helps your REM sleep specifically. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't realized that zone two was helping REM sleep. That is interesting. And around how how much, uh, wait, do you want to just briefly describe what zone two is? Because people might be wondering what that is. There's six main zones of cardiovascular exercise. Zone two is one of the very easy ones for most people. It's a bit over a hundred, um, as far as your pulse, your beats per minute. So most of the time you can talk through it, uh, a, a stroll that's a little bit difficult where you're sweating a bit, but you can still talk is a good way to do zone two. And then a lot of fitness trackers will also just tell you if you're in zone two. So that can be, that can make it a lot easier. So walk, this is where I think it's a really difficult boundary, isn't it? Because walking for example with your dogs and you're enjoying you're listening to a podcast you're probably not quite getting into zone two you're kind of on the very upper limit of zone one right here which isn't enough uh then you've got zone two where if you start jogging for many people they'll be like my heart rate just goes quickly too high something i've been playing with that i really really enjoy and I find it as relaxing. I mean, I, I guess this is why people run and say it's like meditation to them is purely nasal breathing running. And mm-hmm. I found that with that, you can come back. It's a very parasympathetic state where you're in and out through the nose and you can just go on and on and on. And that seems to me a good way of measuring whether you've skipped out of zone two and you've just gone a little bit too high because it comes quite difficult to maintain nasal breathing once you move out of zone two is my understanding. Is that correct? That's a good rule of thumb. Some people are particularly good at breathing through their nose, which is a good thing. Um, that, that's a pretty good rule of thumb though. Um, a brisk walk or a power walk for some people would be zone two. It really just depends on the person. So, um, the more fit you are, the more, um, the, the faster you'll have to walk if you're using walking as your zone two cardio. Mm. So then you kind of need to move into a cycle or swim or a jog or something like that. Possibly, or just a, almost everyone can get into zone two with a, a very brisk power walk. So from a heart rate perspective, this is sort of for most people in their forties is going to be around somewhere between 120, 130 or 135, right? Yes. Yeah. Somewhere in that zone. And this is my understanding is that for optimizing for that, you need to do around two hours a week. Yes. A good rule of thumb is at least three to five times a week for 30 minutes each. Like anything else, the law of diminishing returns applies. So if you do two hours a week for 50 weeks, that is going to be far better than um, four hours a week for just 25 weeks. So consistency matters more than, um, I guess, the cumulative number over uh, a year. And going over that and doing, say, five hours a week doesn't necessarily confirm majorly big benefits beyond doing the two hours. I'm not sure how much the benefit is, but I know that um, if you do, for example, four hours a week rather than two, it is not double the benefit. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe 20% more, maybe 60% more, but certainly not 100% more. 
But it sounds like it's a good way, actually, of getting your dogs walked, or certainly my ones, a lot quicker than uh, than just strolling along because you're going to do it in half the time and benefit your VO2 max and your longevity. And that that is also going to help to optimize hormonal health, is, is what you're saying. Yes, it, yeah. it is. It is quite nice. Um, it will also help um, raise SHBG. Many people struggle with too low of an SHBG, so they can't hold on to their androgens or estrogens. So there's a lot of fringe benefits of exercise. That's why I put it number two, right after diet and the lifestyle pillars, those two are, um, you know, they're all important, but those two are the most important. So talk us through those pillars that you use. What are, what are those? Diet and exercise are the first two. And then the last four, I used alliteration. They all start with an S, but stress is one of them. And that includes social stress and collective health, the health of the family and close friends in your household. And then you have sunlight, which is really just being outdoors. It, inc- it includes cold exposure, heat exposure. And then you have um, spirit as well. So that's this, this is just where you are on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Fortunately, in developed countries, most people are concentrating on the self-actualization the very top of the pyramid rather than the bottom of the period, which, which is their, uh, more their physical needs at the bottom of the pyramid. So that's very reassuring. Mm-hmm. Um, but diet and exercise are really the, the main two. Sleep is the fourth S if I didn't mention it yet. Yes. Yeah, so sleep of is course, important. Sleep is important. Looking at your heart rate variability, looking at your REM sleep as well. And these six interventions are more powerful than any medication or supplement. Mm. Yeah, really, really powerful. I think as much as everyone wants to take the supplement industry, industry has become almost like a prescribing platform. I think just just no different almost than medication. I think these are all great, but if you haven't got those pillars in place, there's almost yes, you can take supplements, but I would constant. I agree with you. I concentrate on those first. Um, we talked a little bit offline, and I really want to dive into this because we talked about the O2 max there, but also the benefits of um, athletic performance and the interaction with hormones and cognitive health, because I think this is really, really important. Um, What do we need to be thinking about in terms of exercise? You know, the research I've been looking at this week is just super interesting around weightlifting and how that's really, really benefiting cognitive health. Um, But I'd love for you to share more because uh, I know this is an area you're very knowledgeable in. There's a lot of theorized mechanisms behind why certain types of exercise help decrease the risk of neurodegenerative disease, so decreasing the risk of dementia, and also improving cognitive performance. In the long run, if you are routinely resistance training, then uh, perhaps that helps increase oxygen delivery to the brain, but it's also possible that um, that just helps the um, the signaling of hormone molecules, the prevention of, uh, sarcopenia, which is the decrease amount of lean body mass over time. And that is very closely correlated and, um, possibly causatory with the decline of the health of, of your brain. So your, your brain and your other lean body mass and your muscles are very closely related. Also, the amount of lean body mass you have and the amount of bone mass you have, which is another type of lean body mass. So muscle mass versus bone mass. Um, so sarcopenia and osteopenia or osteoporosis are very closely related as well. If you look at individuals that have the highest risk for dementia, 
often they, well, one, they did not do any sort of uh, hormone optimization or hormone replacement therapy after menopause. And then two, they're usually obese during the middle ages, and then they lose weight as they age, and then they are at their lowest weight in their older ages. If you look at individuals that are the same weight the entire time, whether it's low or high, they are much lower risk of dementia and resistance training can help maintain that good, healthy body mass that helps retain the good, healthy brain mass. This is interesting though, because what you're saying there is if you have somebody who is obese, but they continue to be obese, their brain is better protected than if they lose weight. Absolutely. And part of, part of that reason is the extra adiposity, the extra body fat helps produce more peripheral estrogen. Mm. Those individuals have more estrogen around, which can help with serotonin tone and also myelinization so that it helps maintain the fatty sheath around the nerves. And it might help prevent some of that cerebral atrophy or the shrinking of the brain that is expected with age. Many people have seen a CAT scanner and MRI of um, you know, an octogenarian and almost always there is some degree of cerebral atrophy, more so in someone who's a heavy nicotine user um, or that has certain, um, you know, more so if you have osteoporosis as well. But it, the extra estrogen for maintaining that high body mass and high body fat percentage. And part of that reason is if you, uh, I'm, I'm not good at conversion of pounds to stone, but if you're a very high BMI or you weigh a very high amount, then it is likely you're very strong, very strong legs and a relatively strong core and a very strong back as well. It takes a lot of strength. It's almost like your resistance training every day. Mm. Just carrying yourself around, right? Mm -hmm. And that helps you be a much lower risk of dementia. If you look at the average amount of lean body mass that you lose as you lose weight, for every uh, pound that's lost, over a third of that is lean body mass. So if someone loses a hundred pounds, then um, maybe 35 or even 40 pounds of that will be good, healthy, lean body mass that was metabolically active. Unless you can intelligently do this right by losing like strength training, eating high protein and trying to minimize any kind of lean body mass reduction. Correct. Yeah. But then I suppose being obese, you're predisposing yourself to other diseases like cancer, potentially. That's true. Very true. Yeah. For example, breast cancer. Yeah, which is difficult. So it's a balance. And so what about, for example, do you think that people who are naturally very lean, for example, and by that, I don't mean necessarily they have a high lean body mass, but are quite petite, and then they just continue along that line, are they likely to experience, uh, are they more at risk of things like dementia? Not that I know of. They are certainly more at risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis, which is low bone mass. Okay. Low bone mm -hmm. mass more, which actually, interestingly, I think can, you can do DEXA scans annually, right? To have a look at this. Um, with, with this concept of hormesis and stressing the body, this is another kind of quite controversial area around how much do we 
as women in our cycling years and then in the lead up to menopause? How much do we fast? How how often do we like the fasting, the length of that period? Um, because I know, you know, some people are very pro fasting, but it can disrupt female hormone health and also exercise. There's growing evidence around restricting really intense activity in that late luteal phase. I'm curious about your thoughts around both those areas. Part of the controversy regarding fasting is that one, it is not done to improve body composition or lose body fat. It's just one tool that can help develop good eating habits. That way you're not dieting. You have a, a uh, diet or a habit that will last a lifetime of good eating habits, kind of developing intuitive eating, if you will. Fasting can certainly help that. And it can also help control the hormones like leptin and adiponectin and ghrelin that crosstalk between fat cells, adipose, and the brain. When it comes to how much fasting an individual should do, it's down the list quite a bit after other lifestyle interventions. It can be relatively easy to do for some people, but if it's really difficult to do for an individual, it's a weak enough intervention to where it might not be worth it. So if you're struggling and you're suffering through fasting and you know it's not just the first few days where you're getting used to it, it's a month or two in where most people do acclimate to it and it's still difficult, then it might not be worth it. And then um, the other thing to think about is, is there a particular reason why this individual is a great candidate for fasting? For example, a strong family history of brain cancer as just one example. So that would be for more of a health reason. But um, intermittent fasting is not going to like make up for, let's say, poor sleep, dysregulated stress in a mental state, and um, uh, just poor collective health in the household as well. Mm. So on a scale yeah. of 1 to 10, I'd give fasting for, like compared to those things, 10% of the benefit. Mm. I think I think it has been like overestimated in many respects, or sort of inflated, right, by uh, different books that have come out and and social media. Because I recently was talking to uh, Dr. Joseph Anton, who's the CEO of Prolon, and we were discussing at length how you know it for most people in a, in a lean individual, they may after twenty four hours begin to stimulate full cellular autophagy, but it's unlikely. Most people are going to take about 48 hours. And the reason that they, in their studies, had created that molecular fast of a five-day length was so that people, obese people, for example, will at least get one day of autophagy. And it seems that exercise is a better tool for stimulating autophagy uh, and all of the other benefits that we're talking about. And so if you're exercising regularly, then you know what I customarily say, particularly to women who are in their cycling years, is a 12 to 14 hour fast. Is, it seems optimal, right? It's giving your body time to relax and you're not constantly working, right? And it can focus on other things, um, but it's also not that difficult to stick to. And it's what I find children, having had children myself, naturally do. They will naturally eat in their younger years around 5, 6 p.m. and they won't think about eating again before 7 in the morning, right? They're naturally doing that. It seems that we're primed for that level of fasting on a daily basis. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Another thing to remember is what specific vector are you trying to get out of fasting? Are you trying to look at more of like the mTOR pathway? Are you looking, um, you know, there's a lot of different, are you looking at like insulin sensitivity, autophagy in general? 
And if you're looking at the mTOR pathway, pathway more specifically, and uh, a lot of people discuss rapamycin and other uh, mTOR inhibitors, and then people also discuss BCAAs, but you see some people who are intermittent fasting, but that to make their fast last longer, they take a, pr a protein like casein protein, which has a huge amount of BCAAs in it. And also it's just a very slow digested protein. So they're, they're uh, activating mTOR and um, in theory, it looks like they're fasting, but they're not actually getting that benefit of fasting because they're having a huge casein protein shake right before their fast. And this because the BCAAs are kind of spiking insulin potentially, whereas if you're having a full spectrum essential amino acid, that seems, in my experience, quite less of a bump from what I've seen in terms of the impact on fasting. Also, just because a lot of the amino acids in the casein protein, including the BCAAs, are activating the mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, so okay. their mTOR is active. They're in more of a anabolic state from that vector. And that's one of the major benefits of fasting. Mm. So they can, then, they're negating a lot of benefits from fasting. Ironically, a lot of toddlers and babies do this as well, because if you look at what we give them um, before their fast, in some cases, is milk protein, which has a lot of casein in it. So again, they're activating mTOR, which is a good thing in children because you want them to be able to grow overnight and you want them to have enough IGF-1, which dairy can help with. And you don't want them to be too catabolic. Mm. Yeah, that's true. This is in very young children, right? Um, and what about... So but if you're, if you're having something like that immediately pre-workout, when I, I was chatting this over with Dr. Stacey Sims, uh, literally just... Few days ago, and we were chatting about how actually there's some evidence that by having some amino acids pre-workout is supportive for women and also protecting uh, against any kind of catabolic effects of breaking down the muscle tissue. And you're getting those benefits of autophagy from the exercise session itself. Yeah, um, the the ideal scenario for timing of nutrients around exercise is you as long as you're able to tolerate it is a medium or small pre-workout meal with amino acids and also a post-workout meal too. Mm. So timing your nutrients around the time of exercise, perhaps not as much really vigorous exercise, but for mild to moderate exercise, that nutrient timing certainly will matter. Um, if people want to test this out themselves, they can also do a 24-hour fast and then exercise fasted and they can do a, a small pre-workout meal and see which one they feel better at as long as you're able to tolerate it. But uh, yeah, I agree. Amino acids around the time of workout, there's no such thing as like an, an there's no anabolic window, but it can help for health purposes other than uh, building up lean body mass. Mm. And you were talking earlier actually about optimizing the cortisol rhythm in the morning. So we've got that cortisol awakening response of that sort of first 60 minutes of the day. I if, I if I don't exercise first thing, it's probably not going to get done. It definitely won't get done after midday. That's just the way I am. Even though I can see all of the circadian rhythm evidence that right. I'm stronger in, I've got great aerobic action ties. No one's ever won an Olympic medal. Good job. I'm not going for one of those before midday and all this stuff, but it's just not going to happen. And I'm a very, uh, just naturally early riser. So for me, 5 a.m., 
I'm ready. I'm in the gym at half past five and I really get a good workout and I love it. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious I'm if the, you're going to tell me. Way. Oh, good. Thank God for that. I thought you might be saying, no, Anjali, you're just destroying your hormones and your adrenal yeah. health. Um, yeah. But it's just nice. And I feel that I am taking, I, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Dave Asprey about it and he was, and I say, I think he was saying, you know, we don't want to raise cortisol too much in the morning. Actually, it doesn't raise cortisol. I don't feel in me. I feel primed and kind of excited and motivated, but calm for post-workout. And I'll either meditate directly before or directly after it anyway. Um, what, what, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you agree with me, but I'm just curious what you think around that and how we optimize that cortisol in the morning. For most individuals, exercising right when you wake up in the morning, ideally before any kids would wake up or before mm. any distractions start coming in or calls. For me, that is the only time that I can exercise. and. Um, the, the fringe 5% benefit. I'm not a professional athlete or anything. So, um, it, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is getting it done. So just like the best diet is one that you can adhere to the best exercise protocol is also one that you can adhere to. Mm, I agree. For most people, and that's first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning and the cognitive benefits I find are profound. And also I was speaking to a sleep scientist about this. Actually, it helps to make up, particularly when you're having things like creatine for any deficits in sleep. So kind of having had a poor night's sleep isn't really the excuse for not getting up and exercising because actually you're doing your body, I think, so much good by exercising, right? I agree. Um, you know, and obviously there's um, law of diminishing returns applies there like it does mm. to most things where if you sleep for two hours, then you probably don't want to get up and have a really vigorous exercise. But um, most in most cases, that certainly applies. Applies. And then with sleep, you were talking about that as one of your pillars. What are your thoughts there? Because some people, I mean, when I've looked at genetic reports, I see indications that actually this seven to nine hours isn't uniform across the population. There are just like we have early morning rises and we have night owls. There are some people who actually seem to need less sleep than seven hours. I know when I look at research, if you go sub six hours, it seems to actually be putting your health at risk. And there's a very small, just like we're told not to sleep over nine hours. There seems to be a small section of the population who do actually need a sort of nine hours or more sleep. What have you found there? And because I I seem to function well, very well on six and a half hours, but I carry APOE4, one copy of it. This is always in the back of my mind. Uh, I'm just curious your thoughts uh, in terms of you have that pillar two of sleep. Those genetic markers certainly run in my family as well. Oh, do they? And some individuals get an extremely low amount of sleep. It is interesting to see how well they function and that they truly just sleep a lot less. But, uh, and I'm not a sleep scientist, and I try to learn as much as possible from scientists like Matt Walker and Andrew Huberman. But what it appears is that if you're getting, let's say, five hours, six and a half, I'm not sure. That seems pretty pretty close to seven to me. So I wouldn't worry about that too much. But mm. if you're consistently getting four or five, even if you're um, functioning perfectly well in the short, medium, and even long term on that amount of sleep, you would be concerned for your health in other ways in the long run. You would be concerned. Oh, as in if you were sleeping, if you're consistently sleeping like four or five hours. Correct. My yeah. understanding is if you're sleeping consistently less than six hours, regardless if it's really good quality of sleep and regardless of your function, that you would certainly be concerned for long-term health sequela. Mm. 
Yeah, that's what I found. I interviewed a, a chrono um, biologist around this, sleep scientist, and it was quite interesting because one of the things he had observed through his studies, PhD, was if you are undersleeping, what generally will happen is as soon as you put that alarm off, your body will naturally try to make up the sleep. So you'll oversleep by quite considerably. Whereas for people who are sleeping less, sub seven hours, so six to seven hours, they will then instead, what will happen is you'll see your stats double down on deep sleep, double down on REM sleep. So the, the amount and the quality, you seem to then sacrifice light sleep, but you won't end up oversleeping. And that's certainly what I've observed. So I don't know, maybe you can see what happens with that. Don't set any alarms and see what your body does. It's quite interesting. Um, before you go, I just have, you've been so generous with your time. One question that we hadn't hit, and I know uh, I've had quite a few questions around this is, and, and I know that this is a, an area that's growing in terms of research, primary ovarian insufficiency there's lots of women. Sometimes this is happening and it is really insufficiency. It's kind of in their late 30s. There are also women that are just trying to fall pregnant within their 40s more and more now due to the changing lifestyle and environment. What have you found things that can move the needle on this on primary ovarian insufficiency, but also on fertility? We talked about ovarian insufficiency and the potential reversal of menopause in mice earlier and how things like NAD plus and ATP optimization from those angles can potentially affect it. So for some women, um, that mitochondrial angle to have optimal mitochondrial health in the ovary is a good vector to look at. You can also look at the time of menarche. So when you uh, basically went through adolescence, uh, first period, et cetera, and if it was particularly early, then perhaps you have uh, excess signaling of things like leptin and gonadotropins. So that's another angle that you can look for to delay the potential time of menopause. And then you can also look at the angle of hormesis and sirtuins, which we also looked at. Mm. Um, There's some studies, um, we mentioned the studies on NMN and uh, NAD+. There's also been studies on medication known as rapamycin, which of course targets that mTOR that we also looked at. So things like intermittent fasting potentially could help with that hormetic state as well. So there's a lot of different little things, but there's not any one single magical thing. The difficult part of this is um, up to now, if you have POI, there is no known way to reverse it, which is why a lot of individuals, including myself, are, um, if you're looking to delay fertility, Yes, you can consider those vectors and there's natural and um, medications that you can consider that will slow the aging of the ovary, but nothing that we know at this point to reverse it. So for that reason, um, most clinicians, if you're looking to have fertility into older and older ages, um, I'm a fan of um, freezing eggs. So mm. um, that being said, the technology and these studies are very frequent and it is an area that we will watch closely. Interesting. Thank you for that. Very, very helpful. Um, amazing. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing so much. Uh, I know that you're very active on Instagram. Um, your knowledge is just incredible. Uh, where can people find, find you and connect with you? My main hub is on Instagram. It's Kyle Gillette MD. And I also have a health optimization clinic that does televisits and in-person visits both. 
And uh, that is called Gillette Health. And we are on all platforms. I also do podcasts with one of my partners from time to time. And we get far down the rabbit holes of various niches. And his name is James. And um, the uh, podcast we do is called the Gillette Health Podcast on Spotify and YouTube and such. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to that in the show notes um, and everything else you've been talking about, the studies, etc. Um, it's been amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast, and you can download the transcript there together with the show notes and all of the other resources that I have on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.